Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation. Welcome to another episode of um, Bioethics in the Margins, and today we got Dr. Brian Pilkington as our guest. I'm really excited to speak to him. And Brian is an associate professor in the School of Health and Medical Sciences, adjunct associate professor in the College of Nursing, and affiliated faculty in the Department of Philosophy at Seton Hall University. He's also professor at the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. His research work focuses on questions in bioethics, where he is especially interested in questions of conscience, moral responsibility, and the practices of the health professions, and in moral and political philosophy, where he's especially interested in the concept of dignity and in moral disagreement. He lectures on practical ethical challenges in healthcare and teaches courses in normative and applied ethics. So welcome, Brian, and thanks very much for being a guest on the podcast. How did you end up in the field of bioethics? Uh, great question. Long story, uh, but I'll, <laughs> I'll keep it short. So I was studying philosophy uh, and really interested in sort of general ethics questions and questions about moral responsibility. And I TA'd for a course in medical ethics at the University of Notre Dame. And I'd always found, given sort of friends and family members in healthcare, had found the interactions between patients and physicians and patients and other healthcare folks to be a really interesting kinds of relationship to think about philosophically. So while I was at Notre Dame, I teed for this course and ended up uh, writing a dissertation on human dignity, which was nicely at the nexus of my interests in moral and political philosophy and also my growing interest in uh, sort of philosophy of medicine and medical ethics. Uh, and that sort of got me into bioethics. And when you say moral philosophy or moral responsibility, can you expand on that a bit? Uh, yes. So uh, early on, um, I, I was very interested in questions about free will. So this will get geeky and philosophical pretty quickly. But um, so ethical concerns associated with whether one actually was responsible for certain things that one did, whether one wasn't responsible. And what I ended up writing, this is ages ago, so I'm way behind on the, the literature. I ended up writing on considerations of omissions. So the sorts of things you don't do that you might be held responsible for. Uh, so there, that, that was the the moral responsibility bit. Um, why do you think dignity is important in bioethics? What, what is the big deal about dignity, uh, dignity if you think? Yeah, uh, good question. I think I'm an aspiring expert, um, but I'll, I'll take the praise. Uh, so I think dignity is especially helpful in bioethical thinking uh, for a couple of reasons. First, it's a universal concept. Uh, so it's supposed to apply to all folks, all human beings, no matter what. And we can fight about situations in which one might think a person could lose dignity. But there's a number of other ethical concepts we use in bioethics which um, don't always apply to everyone. So that's been helpful in my thinking, uh, knowing that it's always in place. I think it also, uh, and I guess this is the second point, highlights the value that all human beings possess. It's not just if you have a certain kind of mental capacity or you have certain abilities or capabilities to exercise autonomy in certain sorts of ways. So to, to phrase this in terms of the big membership question, everybody's in the club. 
And I think the third point, and this will add a little bit of content, because one of the critiques from bioethicists and bioethics community about using dignity is they or we don't really know what it means. Um, and Ruth Macklin has a nice, though I think problematic paper from 2003, which sort of really hits this home. Uh, so when I think about dignity in sort of healthcare practice broadly, I think about three things. Uh, I think respecting a patient or another person's dignity means you can't humiliate them. So there's an anti-humiliation feature uh, if we respect human dignity. It also means that you have to afford persons certain opportunities which are relevant for their health as human beings. So we can't deny opportunities, we can't deny access. And the third is that we can't kill people. Uh, and that one gets complicated and controversial in different sorts of ways, but by and large, um, no humiliation, ensure opportunities, and don't kill folks. And that's, I think, all those three features are connected to the a notion of human being as dignified. So th that was a lot. Did that answer or help to answer the question, Kirk? Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, thank you for uh, breaking it down. And um, to tease my uh, colleague here, you know, that three-point sermon on uh, what dignity is and uh, why it's important in uh, bioethics. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, there's, there's always three points, three, three objections, and three responses, right? It's a good uh, Trinitarian approach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, another question uh, before uh, Amelia jumps in here as well is um, your, your understanding of uh, principalism. Um, and why do you think uh, principalism is the dominant approach in bioethics? And first, for our listeners who do not know, because uh, not all of our, our listeners are, um, you know, in, a, in, a, in a academia. Uh, what is principalism? And then um, after you explain that, uh, why do you think it is a dominant uh, approach in bioethics? Yeah, uh, again, another nice question. So um, principalism is, is the, the bioethical approach. It's the dominant uh, ethical approach within bioethics. And puts forth four key principles, uh, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. And these four principles are supposed to you know, be the foundation for proper ethical work in, in healthcare. Uh, and it was made famous, I mean, it comes out in the book, and Kirk, you can sort of check my history. I think it's 1978, Beecham & Children's put out the first edition of The Principles of Biomedical Ethics. That follows, I think, fairly quickly on the heels of the Belmont report. Um, and I, I am not a historian, so folks who are listening, go see what the medical historians say. Um, but that's principalism. It is, I think, an attempt to codify a set of foundational principles for sort of health, healthcare, research, bioethics, what becomes bioethics, partly in response to um, a history of racist and sexist abuses, especially in research. Um, in the U.S. and in the world generally. Partly it's in response to uh, Nazi research experimentation. So that's whatever, a quick and dirty history of um, principalism. The four principles do a lot of work. Um, I, yeah, Kirk is correct. I, I'm less a fan of principles, principalism for, for a couple of reasons. Why it's dominant, I'm not sure. That's probably a, a, an historian or a sociologist of bioethics would be the best person to answer that. Um, and for folks super interested in this, uh, John Evans, who's a sociologist, has a nice book that came out in 
2014-ish um, that sort of thinks about the task space that bioethics is working in. Um, so that would be a place for a, a deeper dive. Um, okay, there's my song and dance. Now to actually answer the question, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think principalism is easy to use practically in lots of ways, or at least it com presents as being easy to use practically. We know what autonomy is. The Belmont Report sort of takes autonomy and uh, applies it as informed consent. So we have a nice ground for informed consent. Um, and in practical purposes, physicians and nurses and other healthcare folks can sort of take this and, um, and work with it. Sometimes when the philosophers get in the room and really try to delve into a principle, the sort of 234-page dissertation on dignity um, it, it takes a while to get through. So I think there's a certain ease. Um, I guess the second point of why it might be popular is there are a variety, though there are standard interpretations, there are a variety of ways to interpret four different principles so lots of folks can come on board. Um, and I guess the related point there, and this is actually from the, the Belmont Report's language in trying to find principles that can be used in research and health broadly, um, is they're looking for basic principles um, that are part of our cultural tradition. Now, if you're familiar with cultural competencies or just have been bouncing around the world, you know the our cultural tradition is problematic, but um, I think those are probably the reasons it's dominant. It's easy to use, it can be applied, and lots of folks, by and large, go in for something that falls into the category. So you said you had a few you had a few doubts about principalism. Can you expand on them a bit more? Yeah, this is what gets me in trouble. Um, so I think the, I, th I think that there's excellent, important work that's done by principalism, and I think that actually the most interesting um, and challenging cases, uh, and this is what I tell medical students all the time, and nursing students and health profession students, if you're really going to use principalism, the tricky part is in balancing different principles because it might be the case that the name for beneficence right runs against certain considerations of autonomy we see, saw this a lot during covid right um or still during covid where people were sort of balancing these kinds of things um i don't think principalism in practice uh even if the actual text the principles of biomedical ethics has a lot more in it i don't think it in practice is as um lends itself to as much care and as much um, deep thought. And I think some of that deeper thought needs to be there. So lots of times, just you know, talking to the run-of-the-mill uh, physician or nurse, autonomy is just translated as uh, whatever the patient's choice happens to be at that moment. So I think there's easy ways that it sort of just gets interpreted. Um, that's one. I guess the second thing is, given that I think think that dignity is a very useful concept for the three reasons um, I offered. I don't think any of the four principles quite capture what dignity can capture. Uh, and I think that, so in, in some ways, principalism as an approach, I think, lacks something. If there's another concept that can do a lot of that work or most of that work and also um, other kinds of important work. Okay, interesting. Kirk? Yeah, uh, very interesting. And um, of course, this is a uh, bioethics in the margins. Uh, and, and we deal with a lot of um, issues regarding uh, populations that are often overlooked um, or devalued. 
Um, so do you think um, principalism contributes to or restricts the understanding of intersectionality in medicine? And also, since your critique of principalism is uh, the, the understanding and concept of dignity, how can dignity um, contribute or restrict uh, the understanding of intersectionality in medicine? That's a huge question. That, that's two books, Kirk. So um, let me take <laughs> a, let me try and then tell me where I've uh, danced over something or, or missed something important. Um, so principalism first. Uh, it, I think one can use the resources of principalism um, to support an understanding of intersectionality um, of persons within medicine. A absolutely. I mean, particular interpretations of autonomy coupled with a particular interpretation of justice, I suspect would allow you to do the kind of work that I think you're interested in doing in terms of supporting intersectional identities. Um, so I think that could happen. Um, does it restrict it? I mean, I... I, a case might be helpful. I know that's kind of a cop-out, but uh, a case might be helpful because I think we can always come up with an interpretation of a principle that supports it. Um, we could also come up with interpretations of sort of beneficence or non-maleficence in ways that um, might not support it. Uh, so for dignity, dignity could go either way as well. Again, I think it depends on the interpretation. That dignity really highlights, at least in my own thinking, um, bringing everyone together. Uh, so it, the membership question, who counts as one of us, if we answer it in terms of dignity, it's everyone, right? So, so you get everyone on the table. Everyone um, has a moral standing um, and an equal moral standing. So I think that's super helpful. Um, and then in terms of the particular content, uh, so take anti the anti-humiliation uh, or the humiliation prohibition that dignity requires. Um, ensuring that different folks are in situations where they feel comfortable, where they're not humiliated. Um, I think dignity can do that sort of work better. I, and the case we talk about with medical students and nursing students um, is that a patient is receiving you know, appropriate care, and then this unfortunately happens too often. Uh, once the relevant healthcare practitioners step outside of the room, someone makes a crack about the patient's appearance. Um, the philosopher's case, right? This information never gets back to the patient. Her autonomy is not violated. She had a fully inappropriate informed consent process, but something seems wrong to just about everyone, right? This is intuition mongering, so indulge me. And what seems wrong? Well, healthcare folks shouldn't be humiliating uh, a patient, even if it doesn't get to that patient. And I think that's something that autonomy cannot address where something like dignity could. So, that's a shot at each part. Does that help? Does that answer? No, that, that does. Um, now, of course, we know that uh, that was on the individual level. If you could expound a little bit on the um, structural level, because um, yes, individuals ought not to um, humiliate their patients. But oftentimes we do have a medical system that um, I guess I could use that same term uh, humiliates or um, devalues patients. So what would be your particular um, outlook on that particular perspective? 
based off of you know the histories that we're still grappling with and still trying to reconcile and, and repair today? Yeah, 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 excellent question, right? So um, it's not just particular individual encounters which can be sort of helped by reflection on dignity. It's actually broader structural features. So um, it, I think dignity's um, or reflection on dignity, which pushes us to affirm opportunities for all sorts of folks, um, is a nice place. But let me say something about humiliation before I move to the second point. So uh, here's a case, um, a real case, names and details and whatever change to protect uh, the innocent and guilty. Um, but it goes to a, a really basic structural issue, which I was not aware of until someone sort of pointed it out. But on some um, intake forms in certain hospital areas, um, there are not uh, opportunities to specify one's particular pronouns. So just as an example. Um, and so there are situations where, um, and this eventually made its way from somewhere to my attention, um, where a number of folks, um, particularly trans folks, were uh, humiliated, though it seems unbeknownst to the person yelling out um, in a large intake room at a hospital um, because this information was, a, was not available. So was the person who was put in a humiliating situation was her or his autonomy violated? I don't think so. Um, was it a matter of justice? Maybe there's a story to tell about justice, but I think um, thinking about every person as dignified and every person as part of the big club, um, that's sloppy, but that's just sort of the helpful heuristic device for me, um, points us to not to very quickly fixing the intake forms. Uh, and it might seem like something small, but it's actually fairly impactful in the lives of lots of folks. We don't get that with dig uh, autonomy, we get that with dignity. Um, and in terms of access, uh, and so that's the, the second point. I mean, we can say, so uh, until very recently, I lived in uh, New York City, uh, which I think had a very strong and good response to the COVID-19, uh, the enduring COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but if someone wants to say something like uh, folks should have access to vaccines, that sounds great. Then someone's going to ask why. Um, and actually, Kirk, you've done much more work in this area, um, especially on particular communities being marginalized relative to vaccine access. So um, I'll let you say more there. But what I want to say is that dignity supports that. It's not merely a consideration of autonomy where we might say, oh, folks are allowed to go and get vaccines wherever they want or even well, we'll enable them in certain sorts of ways to access this care, right? Dignity really highlights it's a failure of um, members of the community when others don't have those opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, just to uh, play devil's advocate regarding your uh, instance of a, a trans um, individual, um, whether um, they identify as you know um, his or um, her, um, some might argue that autonomy is also linked with identity and that uh, even though I guess technically that individual's autonomy wasn't um, compromised, uh, their identity was in the sense that they weren't being recognized. Um, so uh, autonomy, I think, is linked, uh, deeply linked with identity, right? Because, pe because a lot of times folks' autonomy 
have been uh, restricted or uh, dismantled or um, taken away altogether based off of their identity, right? Based off of what they look like, based off what they believe, based off what they, um, uh, who they love, right? These are different dynamics as well um, that I think are also deeply rooted in uh, interconnected with uh, the understanding of dignity, right? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Good, good, good. Yeah, so I think um, it, in some ways, uh, this is a nice instance of agreement. So it may be that we have two different conceptual approaches, both of which reach the same conclusion. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're all happy with this. Um, it, so you said you're playing devil's advocate. I suspect it's because in the background then is a, a related question, which is, well, if we're going to come to the same conclusion, uh, then why even bother with dignity? Or so that, that's the, right, because we have all of this in, in terms of autonomy and in terms of understanding the bioethical concept of autonomy as it's connected up to identity. Uh, yeah, so if that's a question, it's a good question. Um, and lots of folks have been critical of the use of dignity in bioethics because, and this is Macklin's line from that 2003 paper, um, it's not doing anything more than autonomy is doing. She's got two lines and it's problematic. She has two, but, um, but that's one of the important ones. And that's good. I mean, I think once we start, though I agree that identity is bound up with autonomy, once we start adding further and further uh, concepts and other sorts of contextual features, that's great that it works, but I'm not sure why autonomy plus identity um, ought to be preferred over something maybe a little more straightforward like dignity. So that, that's not a great response. That, that doesn't um, take dignity over autonomy. I just want dignity to be in the game. Definitely understandable. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Amelia? So just so I can clarify, are you, do you think that dignity covers the other concepts as well? Or does it need to be, does it come along with something else or is dignity encompassing the role of the other principles? And can you also speak a little bit, bit about dignity in Catholicism? Because I feel it's um, often cited, um, you know, Catholicism as, you know, a reason, for example, to justify or not justify abortions and things like that. So. Yeah, uh, great question. So, um, a good sort of two-part question. I'll take um, each in turn. So, can yeah, I mean that that would be a nice um, it would be a nice feather in dignity's hat if it did all the work of four concepts and we could just Occam's razor the thing and be down to one. Um, I'm not sure that it does. I mean, dignity. So, I, sorry, I don't think it does. I think there are questions in bioethics where it's helpful to point to beneficence and it's helpful to point to non-maleficence. And then and maybe there's a benefit of sort of principalism. Different folks can sort of uh, weigh, we can balance beneficence against non-maleficence and sort of figure out which way we want to go. Uh, the Belmont Report, which I mentioned, does this kind of thing with respect to research involving children. Of course, Children, especially at a very young age, can't consent, and without doing the pediatric assent and all, sort of getting into the um, the pediatric ethics of all of this, um, it's sort of an interesting question. What do you do? Because we know there's great value that can come from research involving children. Well, they do the balance. Now, I think um, from 
what dignity will offer might be more normative in certain kinds of cases. So it's a little bit trickier to interpret dignity in a way that, um, I guess, in the expanse of possible interpretations of balancing beneficence and non-maleficence. So at the end of the day, if you think, um, and this one gets me in trouble too, but so that third feature of dignity is that it prohibits killing. So there are lots of arguments um, in favor of, say, medically dying um, or previously physician-assisted suicide uh, where I think it's trickier, even though uh, lots of folks disagree, disagree with me, it's trickier to ground that kind of treatment from a particular physician um, in a claim about dignity. Now, I say there's always somebody on the other side because, of course, death with dignity is the catchphrase, um, which is different. So I think dignity cannot do the work of all four principles on a variety of cases or topics. Um, it might ha not have the sort of breadth of possible answers. That's one. Two, Amelia was about dignity and Catholicism. Yeah, so... Um, Dignity is an interesting concept in that there's a variety of um, foundations and traditions which make a claim on the concept. And then from the resources of those traditions, um, the normative implications vary a bit. Um, so the really nice paper for people who are interested in this, uh, Paul Weithman, um, who's a professor at the University of Notre Dame, wrote a paper which came out in 2008, I believe, um, it's in a big volume, Human Dignity and Bioethics, which is free if you sort of Google around through Georgetown's websites. Um, and uh, Professor Weithman's work is on dignity as a second level concept. The idea being that sometimes we have disagreements in our first order uh, moral vocabulary. Kirk thinks the right answer involves reflection on autonomy and identity. I think it's dignity. Well. This isn't going to turn out to be a great example, sorry. But uh, so some folks would think that even if we have different background conceptual approaches, by and large, everyone can say, let's affirm dignity. So it's as a second level, it sort of brings us together. In light of that, there are, so dignity is listed in um, most of the international human rights documents that I have seen after World War II and many national constitutions after World War II, very, very high up in the documents, sort of Article I kind of status. Um, and there are folks who come from a political, uh, political theory perspective, not a theological or Catholic perspective, and affirm dignity. There are also folks who come from uh, a Catholic perspective to affirm dignity and yeah, so I think it's not just a Catholic concept. Sometimes people say that. Um, if one is going to use dignity and is interested in, say, Catholic health care, um, there's a little inside baseball, but the uh, ethical and religious directives, um, someone should check this, but I'm pretty sure it's number ERD 23, highlights the importance of human dignity and of caring for all patients, no matter what, in U.S. health care. Um, which I think is smarter folks' interpretation of my sloppy concept that we're all part of the same club. Okay, so we're going to move on a little bit. And, um, so since the pandemic started, um, you've also written a lot about the ethical and equity issues that sort of ex it's exposed and how these you know, contrast so starkly with this resource allocation ethical debate that sort of took off on the, the distribution um, the 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 um, email listservs 
just they were inundated with obviously um you know um policies and thoughts etc so um you kind of are trying to bring it back to um sort of other harms that are going on that are really being neglected in the in the bioethics world um so i really want to draw attention to your article vulnerability and detention in the time of covid an american failure and that really highlighted conditions in the ice deten detention centers and treatment of undocumented immigrants and how we've sort of this othering and you know not recognizing the dignity of all people which as you said is sort of meant to be encompassed in that sort of um principle how it's caused sort of unimaginable harms um so can you sort of elaborate on your article you just you know said so many great things and i you know i just really enjoyed it and i think it just highlighted this because as you say this is just not discussed and um it sort of got worse obviously with covid because we had a pandemic going on so the conditions just you know um exacerbated you know viral transmission etc yeah uh, amelia thank you the, that's yeah and that uh particular article should be out shortly um but i'm i'm really indebted to uh brian nichols carl coleman and anna uh campo verde who are my co-authors on that piece and yeah, we so uh, there were some news stories uh, I, for, uh, a bit ago um, noting uh, some violations that were occurring in ICE detention centers and um, and sort of some the, the disrespect or the failure to treat uh, immigrants with dignity um, and persons coming uh, into the U.S. And so the I mean we really think this was an American failure. We think that communities owe particular things to folks who show up at their door. Um, and that was the basis of this. And we framed it, you know, we, we sort of were, were thinking about this through the lens of dignity. Um, and there are, I mean, the kinds of treatment that occurred for um, people coming into the country were just horrific. I mean, they were treated like animals, uh, families were separated, parents were separated from their children. Uh, hysterectomies, uh, unconsented to hysterectomies were forced on women in these centers. And to cap all of this off, and I'm, this is uh, Ana Campo Verde's work, um, a lot of what has occurred occurs in places where folks are paid to oversee the relevant detention center. Um, and this sort of connects up to the privatization of prisons in the U.S. I mean, that, as you mentioned, there's a lot packed into this paper um, and we had perspectives from practicing scientists and lawyers as well um, to sort of pull it all together but it's um, yeah I mean it's just it, it's horrific and stretches um, the imagination uh, and, and as you said it's um, things only got worse so um, Dawn Wooten um, I believe I pronounced her last name uh, was the whistleblower originally on some of these cases and so there was a lot of attention um, which though they're terrible once you get enough attention, you hope for a groundswell and, and some sort of response. But then with COVID, with so many other concerns, it, it was pulled away. Um, and I think people, folks have not focused, focused as much. So that, I think, was part one of the question. Um, part two, Oh, part two had to do with the resource allocation. Yeah, yeah. So really nice point. Um, so And I think um, <laughs> the list serves too. Yeah. Uh, I think 
many bioeth many folks working in bioethics um, did a significant service, did a really really nice job understanding that making decisions about who gets what essential medical resource. I mean that's that's really hard to figure out and. Um, frontline workers, the physicians, the nurses, um, the healthcare folks who are doing this, that's really challenging. A concern, um, and this is in a paper that, another paper that Anna and I wrote um, and a few other places, a concern that we had was that all of the attention was on this particular issue, who gets what uh, ventilator. Um, and though it's extremely important not to take away anything from that, if that's the only issue, then we stop paying attention to other things like the dearth of translation resources, um, which is heightened during COVID. I mean, not just informed consent, but try making, I mean, I know Amelia from your work, you, you know more about this than I do, but for a patient in a critical situation to try to make a decision without the support of loved ones who are not in the room, maybe if you're lucky they're on an iPad and there are different languages being spoken, I mean, this is, and throw challenges with health literacy into the mix. I mean, there are a number of issues that bioethicists we thought really should have been pushing. And there's a, um, the Hastings Center has a, a short line on this that I wrote um, on in terms of advocacy. There's so much here that needs to be done. Um, yeah, we, we were concerned that though attention was being placed on important things, we were also missing other important things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm not, I think the resource allocation is a very important question and I'm glad better minds are pushing um, their intellect towards that. But I, you know, I think um, we have to take a sort of broader view as well of what's happening to populations, not just individuals um, with resource allocation, but what's happening to vulnerable populations. Um, so, you know, your article highlighted that really well. And I do want to get back to your article about the um, interpretation services. But so can you, um, in your article, you talk about accountability and reciprocity and how, um, you know, the c there's a connection there and how, or if there is no connection there, this hampers progress. So obviously the ICE detention centres, people have visited them and said this is not acceptable, you know, from multiple levels. It's a human rights abuse, essentially. So, you know, they go back in a year and nothing's changed. You know, you compare that to, say, a hospital, which gets regular visits about quality and, you know, they're very much, um, they have to be accountable and there are consequences if they're not. So how, how is it that we can't make these places more accountable? So that's an excellent public health question. Um, and Kirk's heard my line because um, he's been on the, the COVID ethics series. But I think the, the answer to this and they, or the best way to try to answer this issue and a bunch of other big bioethics questions is to get a bunch of smart folks from very different backgrounds practically reasoning together. So for this, you want the public health folks. It's nice to get a couple philosophers and bioethicists and theologians in the room. We need sociologists. I mean, there's, um, we, there needs to be both the theoretical background, but also the practical, like how we actually put this into place. So that's the, whatever, without content, the, the, uh, the playbook for going forward. Why does this happen? And why doesn't, I, I mean, given, my sort of too much time spent on dignity. Um, I think it has to do, as you mentioned, with a failure of a, the connection between accountability and reciprocity. And a line we have in the, the article you mentioned is that accountability is lax in situations where reciprocity is absent. 
and it's often the case that the most vulnerable are not seen as possessing a status to demand reciprocity. So um, I think when, and you'll know the organization, uh, but I, whenever the, the quality improvement folks right, show up to the hospital, it's nice to visit the hospital at that point because the number of nurses you get on the Tuesday right, of course, has tripled on Wednesday when the organization shows up, right? So you do everything sort of, um, everyone's on their best behavior, and there's a reason to keep the quality, right? There, there's, um, sorry, not there's a reason. It, uh, quality is insured in certain kinds of ways. I think that's because folks are seen um, originally as counting as one of us in a way that I at least have heard, um, and I've, I mean, though it's deeply offensive, I've heard folks speak disparagingly of um, persons in detention centers in ICE facilities. So I think it's a, you're considered to be in the club or you're not in the club. You're in a status where we say, we need to do X because this other person is like us. And many folks don't make that claim uh, in thinking about folks who are detained. And that's one of the reasons why I think dignity is helpful, though Kirk could run this with autonomy too. It, it's not a citizenship claim, right? So if you're... Um, someone who sort of puts a lot of pride in civic virtue and you can tell good stories about this sort of stuff. Um, the argument's going to be different even if you get to the same conclusion, whereas if you're someone who think, di thinks dignity is important, it doesn't really matter um, what your status is relative to U.S. citizenship. That doesn't come into play. It's because you're a human being that you should be treated in certain ways and should not be treated in certain ways. And again, the horrific instance of... Um, performing hysterectomies on women without their consent, I think, you know, yeah, illustrates that. Yeah, this sort of abandoning of any ethical principles for certain populations. It's very disturbing. So in your other article then, um, which I, I also want to highlight, um, the bioethics of translation, Latinas and the healthcare challenges of COVID-19, you again sort of take this not the detained um, population but other Latinos you know maybe documented or undocumented but you sort of underscore the broader resource challenges for these populations again we've often honed in on ventilators and PPE but you're trying to bring attention to interpretation services which obviously these uh, populations and if their patients are entitled to interpretation services in the hospital either an in-person video or phone um, and also accurate, translated, reliable information about, you know, the risks of COVID and how to protect yourself and that kind of thing. So can you help us understand how um, not having, and, you know, this is sort of um, something m most people probably made the connection with, but how not having interpretation and translation material, you know, translated materials impacts your autonomy and then public safety as well. Uh, during a pandemic? Yeah, Amelia, great question. So in that piece, um, Anna and I were um, thinking about two kinds of translation issues. One sort of just, um, well, and in particular, English to Spanish uh, translation and sort of not sufficient resources, but also translation in, in a slightly looser way and really thinking about health literacy and the paths that information has to take depending on the particular context. Um, so, and yes, there, there's a, hey, understanding ven ventilator uh, resource allocation is super important, but there's a lot of other stuff that's going on was the background for that, that piece as well. Um, and so 
if we take, right, to run this with autonomy, as you mentioned, if we take shared decision-making to be important um, in healthcare, if we take the autonomy of folks, or I'd want to run it with dignity, but autonomy works as well, the, the autonomy or dignity of folks, they need to have the relevant information in order to make an informed decision, right? And this is sort of pretty basic, not super interesting um, medical ethics or bioethics, right? I mean, the in intro to bioethics with my first year students, they get this pretty quickly. They understand it. The medical students, the nursing students, folks get this. If you do, if a patient doesn't under really understand what's um, a particular procedure that's about to be performed, um, it's it's ethically problematic to move forward with that procedure, and so it quickly follows. Um, and the burdens, given the Belmont report and um, sort of bioethical understanding of autonomy, the burdens are on the physicians, the nurses, the healthcare establishment, um, not on the patient to make sure that they understand. And so that's sort of what pushes the call for better translation resources. And again, given your work, Amelia, as you know better, I mean, the, you can't simply, one cannot simply call in and read off what a physician might tell her patient in another language. The context matters, who's around matters, the translation, I mean, we even get this in one language, right? You'll have philosophers and and theologians argue about interpretation of particular contexts and whether it can be taken out of one theological or philosophical tradition and put into another. So given sort of the background that lots of bioethics folks, you know, thinking about these sort of rich and complicated concepts um, come to this consideration of translation, we need more resources here. Um, and that was the sort of the main line in the paper. No, I had one other question, but I can. And I was going to ask, like, why isn't bioethics addressing this? Yeah, Brian, why isn't bioethics addressing this? Please answer that question. Uh, yeah, good. So I think, um, yeah, and and run through my or you know edit and replay my my list of disclaimers of things I'm not, so I don't have proper standing to address some of this stuff. Um, so I think. Bioethics as a field, right? When it is generalizable, so they're going to be all through the holes in this. But bioethics as a field, I think, is moving in ways and is expanding in ways where these kinds of questions might um, be focused on more. So there is, right? There are folks doing some of this work. This is good work. It needs to be done. It's important. Um, and actually, the new sort of themes, um, if we can make a I don't know if I can make pitches or not, but the big ASBH conference, American Society um, for Bioethics and Humanities, has a theme focus for the fall on public bioethics, right? So, and in some ways, sort of thinking about other kinds of features um, beyond just specific hospital policies or something like that um, is being welcomed, and more and more people are thinking about it. So, I think it's um, it's it, it's there. We're sort of in the wings now. If if the question is why wasn't wire and translation resources or other sort of challenging situations um, that face folks for whom English is in the third language when they're in a situation where English is um, most often spoken. Uh, in COVID, I think, well, two things. Uh, I guess I think a lot of things, but two things. One is when COVID hit the U.S., with good reason, uh, lots of folks were scared. Many people uh, and many health institutions were not prepared. And so people ran to what's the particular policy that we have to do. And the, one of the most challenging situations, and I imagine I'm not a uh, physician, I, um, I won't put Amelia on the spot, but I imagine um, whether to, 
whether you have to care for patient A or patient B and you view them both as your patient in a way, I can't even imagine what that's like. So I think in some ways, lots of attention was pulled toward this kind of situation. What I have learned and I've benefited greatly from uh, my colleagues um, at Seton Hall School of Health and Medical Sciences here, um, especially the SLP folks and the OT folks, is there are so many ethical issues which are not, well, which occur in daily life. Right? And so uh, the OT folks are wonderful with this and are huge fans of dignity because it's not just the beginning and potential end of life when bioethics folks should get riled up. It's all through the middle and it's sort of the daily thing. So not having health literacy or facing health literacy challenges due to the fact that most of the information being shared is either in not the language that you speak or through particular pathways which you have very good reasons given history to distrust. Um, I mean, that's, it, it's something that more work, you guys are right, more work must be done. And I think bioethics is getting, many folks are moving in that direction. I think given the seeming acuteness of some issues, they lots of folks focused on those and not on what I find to be more important and more impactful. Yeah, um, definitely. It's, um uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, particularly the COVID-19 pandemic really has raised a lot of things to the surface that have, whether intentionally or unintentionally, been uh, suppressed. Um, so I guess the positive thing about it is uh, about the pandemic, uh, COVID-19 pandemic specifically, is that it has forced people to not be ignorant anymore because you can't. You're quarantining. At that point, we were quarantining our homes and we just saw a plethora of things that existed. Um, but many people had the privilege not to even recognize that it existed until it was really straight in your face, um, raw, no holes barred. Um, and of course, uh, from there, what do we do, right? Um, in that particular regard. Um, so uh, to bring it back full circle um, with. Uh, towards the ending of our conversation uh, today is uh, a couple things. First, uh, there's a movie or documentary, as I should say, uh, one actually won an Academy, not an Academy Award, excuse me, an Emmy Award uh, for Best Outstanding Current Affairs Documentary. Um, and this was in 2020. Uh, it's called Belly of the Beast, a film by Erica Kahn, which deals with sterilizations, uh, particularly within... Uh, women's prisons uh, and this is um, not you know eugenics era you know 19th century um, you know even 18th century uh, this is or even 20th century this is 21st century in the 2000s um, that sterilizations are still going on in dominantly uh, female uh, prisons and the demographic that faces of the sterilizations are women of color, Latinx, as well as, um, you know, black individuals, black women. Uh, so I just wanted to highlight that um, for public scholarship. Uh, it's available on, um, I believe, Apple TV, um, as well as Amazon Prime and many other different um, streaming services. And of course, you could just Google it, Billy of the Beast documentary, and it will give you that information. So I wanted to uh, put that little plug in because I think it's important to educate oneself and uh, without you t spending a lot of money to take a class about it, at least you can learn a little bit about it uh, through 
um, media, through academic media, through the documentary series that they have there. Um, so the last question, because we're dealing with all these different complexities and issues within bioethics, um, with dignity, with uh, so many different um, layers in understanding uh, basically how we could be better and do better within medicine, right? That's the, that's the point, is um, what is your understanding of philosophical complexity? Because we did talk about that without really talking about it specifically um, in teaching medicine. And why do you think philosophical complexity is not embraced in um, different settings in medicine and in, in clinical settings as well? Uh, great question. That's a really big, so it's a big question. Um, I need more disclaimers. You, you, you've gotten me to talk about uh, the Catholic Church, bioethics, and now teaching in medical school. So this is good, Kirk. Um, yeah, uh, so I think the, <laughs> the uh, yeah, embracing philosophical complexity, though I think it's good, I think that there are, um, I mean, I'm deeply in favor of it, and I think it should happen more in, the training of health professionals, and especially more um, in medical schools. Within medical schools, and again, I, I have not gone through medical schools. I've, um, I just teach at one. Um, I think that there is so much important information that uh, students need to take on. And so many, you know, they must be proficient in so many things that uh, it's viewed as that, that there's not enough time to really step back and engage philosophically with some of the relevant issues and questions. Some of them I think actually are sort of not, um, maybe not super useful or not um, appropriate at different stages, just stick with medical education. Um, but I think overall medical training could benefit from a sort of uh, a philosophy-based medical education. I think it, I think it would be so yeah, so I don't. My guess is there's a lot going on, and that's sort of fallen to the wayside. Um, but I think it could be useful in the in the very least. I think it um, at its best, right? Philosophy is all sorts of deeply as an as an approach to deeply problematic um, history. But as an approach, the basic idea. I mean, what I've enjoyed about philosophical engagement is. Everybody shows up, everyone, if it's going well, has a seat at the table. And I tell students, it's like, you can say whatever you want in a philosophy class, and then you have to back it up with an argument. And it's the argument, right, when things go well. It's the argument back and forth. And so I think if medical schools embraced sort of a philosophical founding a bit more deeply, it would help students get a critical distance from um, certain sorts of engagement with health systems and maybe even point toward some of the structural problems, right? So is it a medical problem um, when a physician aims to prescribe a certain kind of treatment, say like you need to eat healthier um, for certain reasons, and then they find out that their patient lives in a food desert, right? So lots of folks think, yeah, this is a medical problem now. Well, it's only a medical problem if you have a particular philosophical story. And I think as, and the medical school I work at is very good at this, as people are paying more and more attention to the social determinants of health, to structural injustice, um, to sexist and race, racist structures, we're gonna start to think about expanding the scope of what counts as medicine. And that's a philosophical question, right? I mean, 
physicians and all sorts of practitioners should be involved, but the category question is philosophical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it definitely does help. Uh, just relooking at um, rethinking how we do curricula, um, medical schools, and how we we teach. Because um, of course, the science, the biology, the technology is important. We want to have competent uh, doctors in those areas. Uh, however, um, again, this is where also medical humanities comes in. Um, humanities also is important because the majority of uh, malpractice suits and uh, issues within the clinical setting is not that the doctor uh, did not know his or her biology, science, or, or the technologies of the time. It was interpersonal skills, what was going on in that brain, right? Um, how they interact with the patient, right? Um, and again, and I say this all the time with medical humanities, um, the job of medical humanities is reconciling the human body with the human being, right? We look at the human body and we forget about the human being. And well, hello, those are, you know, there are two entities in one, right? And and that's, I think, ultimately what dignity is about. It's not just the the, the physical dynamics of the person, but the uh, humanities-based dynamics of the person that makes them them, right? Or what we say, what makes you you, your religion, your family, where you live, your loves, what you like to do, you know, uh, the individualized um, individual, the individualized patient, right? Um, and I think that's very important and that shouldn't, that shouldn't start after, uh, ones get, you know, their medical degree or their DO, right? It should start in the classroom first year, right? Um, and actually now we are learning that it should start in undergrad. So if we have those who are uh, pre-med or those who are biology students or, um, those who want to go to med medical school and pursue, um, medical degrees and work within the huge uh, industry of medicine, whatever particular field they want to do, that should be foundational in their training. So when they come up, yes, they're good in biology, science, technology, and all these other different um, topics and subjects, but they actually are very emotionally intelligent and understand the different dynamics of the patient, right? Uh, and really, that's what can you ask for uh, out, out of that with with, you know, competent doctors. Right. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Your 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 question definitely has hit a nail. I hope uh, our, med our wonderful medical schools in our in this country will continue to listen um, and not do the same old, same old, but actually change and really incorporate more humanities based learning in medical school. I think uh, just like you uh, mentioned, it, it's extremely important. Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jiang and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.